Oh, here they come. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I'll just mention that uh, there is a meeting that will be happening here in here at 11.15, so we're invited uh, to... Uh, I negotiated for the last 15 minutes quite extensively, <laughs> you know, and was able to say 11.15 rather than 11. So just to let you know, um, usually that, that works pretty smoothly. So we'll be... Uh, if... Uh, fine to stay in the foyer, but uh, there'll, there'll be people coming in to set up starting about 11.15. So leaving the chairs here? I believe so. Yeah, I believe we could, could leave the chairs uh, as is. Okay, I will start. So this morning I want to talk about the relationship of mindfulness and metta, or mindfulness and loving-kindness practice, and how as we mature in both practices they are more and more interfused. The larger context for today's talk, as well as uh, last week's and next week's, is the theme of looking at how mindfulness can be understood as a broad practice that needs to be connected with other dimensions, with ethics, with wisdom, with the heart, we might also say with the body, and that this whole uh, exploration was really catalyzed by a discussion that we had just last week on uh, Monday of last week, among the, uh, many of the members of the Teachers' Council on how we would relate to the increasing development of what could be called secular mindfulness. Mindfulness being offered in the larger society in all sorts of ways. People bringing mindfulness into psychology, psychotherapy, medicine, law, sports, yoga, uh, corporate life, the military, police, all these different areas, education. And it led uh, many of us to ask the question of what might we at Spirit Rock offer to this movement, which is kind of happening willy-nilly. And how do we understand that movement? What are the wonderful things happening? Are there, are there dangers as well? And many of us thought that uh, in many ways, they're wonderful developments, but they also can be problematic in that mindfulness can be given quite a narrow um, reading or interpretation. And we may also, in our own practice, have at times a more narrow sense of what mindfulness that is. That mindfulness is sometimes could be seen just as a technique to be a little bit more peaceful, or to relax, or to be able to know what's happening in our own inner experience. And sometimes uh, mindfulness in these more secular contexts is given a rather limited interpretation. We were concerned at that uh, phenomenon because generally we want to frame mindfulness in a broader sense here <laughs> in the context of ethics, in the context of a wisdom, which can be with changing phenomena, as, as we just saw. 
So, um, and that, that was a shorthand way of expressing our concerns that sometimes mindfulness seems to be disconnected from ethics and from wisdom. And we could also say sometimes from the heart, sometimes from, from caring. And so last time I focused especially on raising that larger issue and looking at the connection between mindfulness and ethics. And I'll review that just briefly. And today I want to talk about mindfulness and metta, or mindfulness and loving kindness, how our mindfulness practice gets connected with the heart. Next week I, I was planning to talk about mindfulness and its relationship to wisdom. The aim of all of this is to broaden our understanding and our practice of mindfulness. I think it's very possible for us as practitioners for our mindfulness practice to get small or narrow or limited and can always have a value, uh, for example, just to sit, relax, you know, know what's on my mind. But that, uh, and that can be very important at times, but it's very helpful also to have the wider horizon. That mindfulness in the uh, traditional Buddhist context, for example, uh, was in its mature development understood as part of a path of liberation. And to that extent, was linked with uh, the other factors of the path, the other, you know, specifically in the traditional rendering with the other factors of the Eightfold Path. Right mindfulness, or what I called last time mature mindfulness, or developed mindfulness, is distinguished classically from what is called wrong mindfulness or immature mindfulness. Mature mindfulness is characterized by its link with the other factors of the path, and we could uh, give shorthand for that by saying that it's linked with ethics and with wisdom. You know, the, sometimes when the Eightfold Path is thought about, uh, it's thought about as, as taking place in three core groupings. And some of you know this uh, expression in the Pali language, we speak of sila, samadhi, and panya, which we sometimes would translate as ethics, Samadhi is concentration, but we usually say meditation and wisdom. So the three groupings of the Eightfold Path are ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Mindfulness would come under meditation. And so the shorthand for saying what does uh, mature mindfulness look like, it's both developed in itself, but it's also linked with ethics and wisdom. And that's not always done. In this culture, we've had a particular preoccupation, I think, with meditation and haven't always made the connections with ethics and wisdom. You know, that's so, and I, I mentioned last time how some of that is, comes out of the particular historical and cultural context that we're, that we're in. So my intention for these weeks is to both give a view of uh, the broader meaning of mindfulness in its mature aspect that is connected with ethics and wisdom and also suggest really concrete ways of making that practice real. Today I want to focus particularly on mindfulness and loving-kindness because I think that uh, partly due to our conditioning we can also sometimes disconnect mindfulness from the heart, disconnect mindfulness from uh, metta practice. Uh, that in our culture, uh, mindfulness seems to be more seems to be interpreted often as something more cognitive, you know. And in our culture, we have long-standing distinctions between the mind and emotions, or between emotions and knowledge. You know, we want our knowledge to be really cut off from emotions. We want our knowledge to be objective, right? And to be objective, it's sometimes thought it should be disconnected from emotions. From a philosophical point of view, that view of objective knowledge has come under serious criticism, you know, in, among many uh, philosophers and people who reflect on that. And I don't think it's really held seriously as it once was, maybe 30, 40 years ago. A number of people have really said, that, uh, really made the connection that, that uh, 
you know, whether it's people uh, doing studies of emotions and showing the cognitive structure of emotions. That if I'm angry, it's not just some raw um, affect coming out, but my emotions are structured cognitively, for example, by a sense of right and wrong, by a sense of what was appropriate in a given situation. There can be a strong cognitive dimension to being angry. It's not just something raw that comes up, but it's mediated through all sorts of uh, uh, ideas, structures, a lot of them cultural. And, and actually, psychologists would distinguish between the more physiologically based affect and then how that surfaces in a particular culture as emotion, which is highly structured by ideas and thoughts. Does that make some sense? That's shorthand for quite a few books. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to read them. They're, I read them. They're very helpful, but you got the 30-second version. And, uh, but I think probably many of us, when we meditate, we intuitively or through our own observations, we, we, can, we can know that. Uh, uh, you know, it's like the... I think the French philosopher Pascal once said, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows not. That it is something that there, is, there, there can be in the mature heart quite a lot of wisdom and quite a lot of uh, knowledge. So in any case, but our cultural context tends to split these off. It's very good to know that. You know, we, we tend to split off knowledge from the heart and also from ethics and also from wisdom, as I mentioned uh, last time in a little more detail. Um, and last time I particularly focused on the importance of connecting mindfulness with ethics. I talked about how uh, when mindfulness is taught as a technique or just something, a way to find some peace or have a little bit of inner knowledge, the link with ethics isn't always there. And this is a major concern in the secular use of mindfulness. And we explored in the questions last time, for example, uh, what happens sometimes if mindfulness is taught as a technique to be more in tune with oneself in settings where people may be doing things which are unethical. Um, and we talked about sort of the complex quality of that, that it could lead people to be more aware of what they were doing and not want to do what's unethical or it could lead them to, in a way, um, be at peace, have more peace and inner serenity, and go about doing what they were doing anyway. You know, and I mentioned last time, the, one of the uh, cautionary tales comes from 20th century Japan, where meditation was used very, very uh, extensively in the service of Japanese fascism and militarism, with Zen masters giving pep talks uh, to the soldiers as they went off to war. And I mentioned also how um, you took quite a bit of time after the war, but the Zen establishments and many Zen teachers basically apologized. And I mentioned how I was present at a ceremony of sorts with a Zen teacher uh, who was very high up in the Zen hierarchy talking to an international group and apologizing. I think this was in 2000 or so. This was, you know, over 50 years after the end of the war and saying, essentially, we, our practice became disconnected from ethics and there were horrible consequences. You know, so it's a cautionary tale. It's possible as mindfulness gets brought into so many sectors and a lot of those sectors may be involved with ethically problematic behavior that the same issues were, will arise in our culture. I think they probably already are. Yeah. So, and then, then I suggested that one of the best ways to bring these different dimensions in is quite similar to what we did in the uh, meditation this morning, is to work with two dimensions, work with uh, intention Often at the beginning of a practice, if our intention expresses our wish that our practice be of benefit to others, to help others, that that starts to bring in the ethical dimension. And that another way of doing it is simply giving some attention, for example, to the ethical precepts. There's a way that I think the 
I think this is really the understanding classically that we may do certain practices separately. We may attend to ethics through reflection or through like what we will do a week from now through gatherings and rituals. And we may do mindfulness practice somewhat separately or we may do loving-kindness practice somewhat separately. But when they're all part of the, as it were, the curriculum and they are unified by an understanding of them as interrelated, they tend to mingle and they tend to influence each other. And they tend, as we developed more ethically, for example, when we develop more ethically, we may bring our, uh, our caring, we might say, out of the more limited spheres that we often bring it. We might, you know, often we have our, our real caring is in a small circle of family and friends. And we may, as we start to become more ethically sensitive, bring that caring into more people we meet, or have it be a general way that we approach everyone, you know, which is an aspiration of our practice. And that can in turn lead to more mindfulness. It can lead us to see when we're not doing that. Maybe a, a, a light bulb goes on. Oh, I'm really aspiring towards that and now I'm not. What's going on? Let me look at and see what's there. Or it can lead to wisdom about interconnection. The same way that as we deepen in wisdom and, and realize, oh my gosh, there is this, I, ha, I had experience of profound interconnection of all things that will influence how we live ethically. And so I think there's a way in which we, in which deepening, when we have these in connection, deepening in any of the areas has implications for how we approach one of the other areas. So I think that's, that's that sense of if they're all part of the curriculum and we're giving attention to them and they're mingling, good things will happen. And I, so I think it's, you know, I gave the very simple practice of just having some time in which we attend to the ethical dimension in addition to mindfulness. And, and the same thing could be said of mindfulness and, and metta, and that's what I want to talk about for the rest of the, uh, the morning. Um, it could seem, especially if we're somewhat driven by the conditioning that tends to separate out the cognitive from the emotional, or our thinking from our feeling. And very strong conditioning in this culture. We might then come across mindfulness and loving-kindness practice and think they're quite separate. You know, and we do do them initially as separate practices. We do, okay, we do mindfulness, okay, now time for mindfulness. Okay, now time for loving-kindness. Okay, okay, okay. Open up the heart, Donald. <laughs> you know. Get out the heart, it's time to be kind. <laughs> you know. Uh, and it could seem like they're somewhat separate, and even the vocabulary we use for each of them could make it seem like they're rather different. You know, and I, I think some of this is just that uh, it's not so much that we want to say the cognitive and the emotional are the same, or that thinking and feeling are the same, but that they are linked, that they are connected. Uh, because we can really focus more in one way or the other. They're different, as it were, lenses that we can use. Um, but I think what I'm going to point to ultimately in the case of mindfulness and metta is that the direction we're going is towards what we might call uh, loving presence or what Jack Kornfield called the wise heart or uh, compassionate awareness that we, we want to point towards that way in which these get integrated. That, and I think we can maybe know in our own experience, if you think of being uh, with a friend who really cares about you, the quality of attention from that person or the quality of attention you give to someone that you care about has both attention and love totally integrated. You know, when you, when you, when you consider that. You know, so that we ha I think we have the experience of that caring attention is quite a common one. But what we're looking for is to have that be more and more the case, to have our loving-kindness and our mindfulness each get developed and get developed more in connection with each other. They can at first appear rather different. You know, they, they almost use different languages, that the language of loving-kindness when we do the practice, it's rather personal. You know, we're, we, we wish, may I 
be well, may I be happy. And the language of mindfulness tends to be more impersonal. We, we, we look and we see, here's thought happening, here's feeling happening, here's this happening, as if they are impersonal factors rising and falling in our experience, and we just notice them. And in fact, in mindfulness, we sometimes want to get the sense of self out of the way, right? So they can appear, What's, you know, how do these connect? We sometimes get questions in loving-kindness retreats. How does this connect? Um, we could sometimes think that loving-kindness works, works with phrases, it works with clunky words. Mindfulness goes beyond words and is just with phenomena in their pure state. You know, we could sometimes feel that. So people sometimes complain. The loving-kindness practice feels so gross. I want to get beyond words. <coughs> you know, we can feel that. Or, uh, or loving-kindness can sometimes be more hot and mindfulness can be more cool. Right? And even the, the aim of wisdom is to somehow be cool, which is a, you know, the very notion of nirvana or nibbana, which is the highest aim of wisdom, highest aim of the path, is under the metaphor is that of a fire going out. And so how does that relate to the, the, the heat of the heart? You know? So they can appear, again, they can kind of appear like they're different qualities. You know, with loving kindness, it's a kind of wishing well for ourselves and others. And sometimes when we look to the mindfulness or the wisdom dimension, we get the message, whatever you wish for, things are as they are, fella. <laughs> you know, you get that sense. And some of you may have found this tension in yourself saying, how do these parts go together? You know, the personal and the impersonal, the, the uh, focus on self on the one hand and the focus on uh, seeing beyond the construction of self in mindfulness practice. Um, you know, and in the same way, mindfulness seems to be invested in particular intentions or results. Mindfulness may want, seems to say, may you be happy, may you be uh, safe, may you be at peace. And then with our mindfulness and wisdom practice, again, it can say, things are as they are, get used to it, <laughs> right? It can appear, again, it can appear a little cold. Right? <laughs> you know? So, do you feel that tension right now? <laughs> you know? Is that, how many people have felt that kind of tension at times in these dimensions of our practice? Between the mindfulness on the one hand and, and the heart on the other. Um, you know, loving kindness can seem to be about wanting things to be a certain way. With our mindfulness practice, we're taught let things be as they are, and watch out for grasping onto the way you, things, you want things to be, right? So, have, having partly the purpose of setting up a creative tension in everyone's minds. They say, how do we get around that one? My gosh, that's, that's, that's challenging. And as I mentioned, we, we had some of that sense of separation can be uh, supported in a way uh, by the contemporary conditioning, which splits off, again, the mind and the heart. So, how do these actually connect? How do these actually integrate? And again, my, my long-term aim is really to have us, when we're working with our mindfulness practices, to have a, more of a sense of integration with the ethical dimension, with the heart aspect, with wisdom, so that they get more and more full, and that there are concrete ways that we can that we can do this. So when we actually look towards the practices, we can see that they actually start to connect with each other. And when we teach, for example, the loving kindness retreat, uh, uh, Sylvia, myself, several other teachers, um, it's a strong emphasis on how mindfulness and metta are connected. And we can see that in some ways when we actually do mindfulness practice and stay with it, the heart tends to open up. You know, for example, when we are being mindful and there's some emotional pain, it will tend to evoke compassion. The heart will tend to open. When we really do the practice fully, mindfulness leads to a caring heart. 
you know, mindfulness, even if we're a beginner, it can evoke a quality of the heart when we, when we do it fully. It's not simply attention. Um, there's a way in which I think also sustained attention can also open the heart when we really, when we really notice uh, something there can be a sense, there can be a sense of warmth when the attention is really full. And I mentioned last week uh, the book uh, by a friend, Stephanie Kaza, The Attentive Heart, subtitled Conversations with Trees. It's really, it's really mindfulness with trees. And in the book, she talks uh, about how she really just practiced mindfulness with trees. And when one's with a tree and the mindfulness is sustained, there can be a sense of care, of love, and even compassion, as in her experience, she would go into the awareness of the tree and something, for example, might, might show that there was a disease happening. And she might have some knowledge, oh, this disease came about because of the logging that, made, that led to a certain situation where it became more vulnerable or she might find some trees with the signs of uh, uh, chainsaws and so forth. And so for her, the sustained attention actually opened up the heart. I think we know that when we have sustained attention to another person, you know, and we can know the hopes and fears, the loves and so forth, you know, that really sustained attention almost to anything uh, can, really, can really open up the heart. Um, sometimes I, I do a practice, which we haven't done here for a long time, which I call uh, being with ordinary objects. And I ask people to take just any object, you know, like this glass, and to give sustained attention to it, maybe for two or three minutes. And when one does that, something seems to sometimes shift. It's not just a kind of a cold mindfulness, but sometimes one can really be deeply aware of, uh, sometimes we, we, our mind can go to the causes and conditions or what brought this into being. You know, I remember, I remember one <coughs> fairly intense experience when, when I was, when I had some um, uh, jaw surgery and uh, my jaws were broken, basically, to realign them. I don't know if anyone else has had that same surgery. I think it's called orth orthognathic surgery. And it was, you know, it was an attempt to remedy a situation, it said, where I had my mother's upper jaw and my father's lower jaw, or maybe vice versa. <laughs> and they both were, in themselves, nice jaws. <laughs> but they didn't go together so well. And so, you know, like basically they weren't aligned well. And so I had, you know, I was basically told if you don't have this as you get older because you won't be able to chew well, there will be problems. And so uh, I had this done. It was uh, largely a success. Um, the chewing is more effective now. Just, you know, just to give you a personal item about my life. <laughs> and. But what happened with this surgery, I had uh, general anesthetics, and it's sometimes not so well known, but actually having general anesthetics takes one close to a near-death experience. I don't know if you, probably many or most of us have had general anesthesia. And I was, um, after that, I was in an altered state for 10 days wow. after that surgery. And I've talked with a friend of mine, Jean Achterberg, you know, who, some of you may know her writing. She's wrote, wrote books like on uh, Women and Healing was one of her books. She's done a lot of work with people with cancer and the use of imagery in healing and so forth. And I talked with her, and she was like a uh, senior editor of a journal on alternative, uh, and it was on alternative and complementary forms of medicine. And she said it's not so well known, but that, 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 uh, being on general aesthetics is very is actually close to death, and you can have near-death experiences. And the experience that I had when I came to really interfused, maybe through, through the intensity, for about 10 days, my attention and my heart were completely integrated. Mm -hmm. 
And everything I saw, I had compassion for, for about 10 days. It started to lessen, you know, it, it wasn't as strong as it, you know, in those 10 days. But at first, like I remember sitting in the hospital bed and looking at a, at a mug and feeling compassion for the mug because it would break at some point, you know, or, you know, and for people, of course, it was larger, you know, everyone was vulnerable. I mean, I think I imagine we sometimes have these experiences where we see and there's that sense of the heart and the vulnerability and the fragility of everything, including mugs and plates and so forth. And that was my predominant experience for, for uh, those, those days. And I was thinking that, that you know, there was a kind of way that the attention got fused with the heart. Um, mindfulness, when we practice it, sometimes goes into, gets into that territory when we do retreats. Sometimes, and I've experienced sometimes that quality. I, maybe there's a, this is a poem that I uh, wrote when I had this kind of experience. I was actually doing loving-kindness practice, uh, but that there was this uh, way that I was feeling this warmth and kindness for all objects. The rocks, too, deserve our love. <laughs> This is, from, this is just part of the poem. The asphalt road, the small bush drinking in the water in the winter rain, the building of redwood, the dust sky, my soup this evening, may they be happy. May they enjoy well-being. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's that way that the mindfulness can lead to that metta. And maybe as, as in that example, there, there is uh, a way that the metta, when we practice it, can open up to a kind of attention which is full of the heart, you know, as we have more of a sense. And both of these, as they move towards each other, there can be more a sense of the vulnerability of being alive, of being anything in the world, really. The vulnerability, the fragility, the need for care for everything. That's, I think, where these become mature. Uh, a deepening of a sense of the interconnection of all things and my relationship to them. This, is, these, this can be an expression of the, the mature, wise heart, where both are present. And so we, we can have our mindfulness practice as we deepen it, sometimes touches into that quality of heart in, in dramatic and less dramatic ways. Simply to be present with my knee pain, there can be a quality of heartfulness you know, oh, Donald, you're so interested in this practice. I feel like I'm, I'm channeling Sylvia at the moment. You, gather, you know how she does that? I'm doing it. I've really, I've really uh, integrated her inner reflection. Oh, Donald, yeah. you're sitting and it's not comfortable, is it? No, it's not comfortable. I, part of me wants it all to go away. But I know that to do practice with integrity, I have to sit with this. Oh, yes, don't say that. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, that's how I feel. Oh, yes, but I'll do it. Oh, oh, you're, you're noble doing this. Oh, I love you. <laughs> so, so that can happen sometimes, just in sitting with the knee pain. Imagine something more dramatic, right? You know, or something more intense. So, the, uh, the mindfulness can lead in that way. And similarly, when we do loving-kindness practice, we're just really wishing well for ourselves and others. And along the way, we have to notice everything that gets in the way of actually being able to stay with uh, the mindfulness phrases, right? And, or with the metta phrases. And so mindfulness naturally develops when we do metta. We notice, oh, I'm trying to do metta, I'm trying to do loving-kindness phrases, and my mind is continually going to that subject of that unresolved relationship with X. X should get it more together, certainly. Yes, it's clearly X's fault. Oh, was that really loving-kindness? Oh. <laughs> and we notice those patterns, right? We notice those patterns. It's part of what we, we study when we do the loving-kindness practice. In a way, as these get interfused, Loving-kindness becomes a kind of befriending of what we notice. You know, and there was a, quite a powerful experience that I had when I did a long loving-kindness retreat 
And I, think, I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, it would have been about six years ago, maybe almost seven years ago. I did about five weeks of loving-kindness practice here at Spirit Rock and it was quite wonderful in many ways. And as it was getting, as it was towards the end of the period, it felt it was quite strong. And I noticed it became very noticeable whenever there would be a judgmental thought of myself or another. And when I would have something like that come up, I would instantly want to amend for it. You know, I would notice someone, you know, I don't know, um, taking a lot of food in the dining hall. <laughs> Occasionally happens, you know. <laughs> and, and I'd make a, make a little comment and I'd say, oh, oh there's, there's a judgment. And I would come back with four metaphrases for that person. And what was very, that, that was interesting, but what was more interesting was that I found myself wanting to have that quality of the heart. When you do a long retreat, it can be sustained. It can be almost stabilized, so it's just there all the time. That quality of caring can be there in a sustained, continuous way. And I experienced when I would actually even notice something about someone which wasn't necessarily judgmental. I would say, that person's walking with a limp. And if there wasn't the quality of the heart there, that felt distorted to me. That felt off. It was really, really interesting. I mean, I, of course I can't say that that's been sustained since then. Uh, but it's something that I did experience and is sort of an aspiration. But particularly, it told me that for me, in that state, even using the mind in a very ordinary way, if the heart's not there and connected with it, it will tend to be distorted. To me, which is a, which is a strong teaching for me, you know. It's really about wanting one's mind and the loving-kindness to become more and more integrated. So that, in a, in a sense, the heart is always available and increasingly always there. That one can lead with the heart integrated with the mind. It's an aspiration. You know, our practice can go in that direction. And so the metta can lead in that direction as we practice loving-kindness. Um, there's a, a British teacher and a scholar named John Peacock who likes to talk about loving-kindness as a path of awakening. That when we follow loving-kindness, and Sylvia talks about this as well, that loving-kindness has all the elements in it. And if you read the Metta Sutta, Sylvia quite often, probably quite often here, has, has used the core text on loving-kindness, the Metta Sutta, as, and reads from it and brings out how in loving-kindness itself we have integrated ethics and wisdom, as well as mindfulness. That the first lines of the sutta say, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness. Remember that? That's the connection of loving-kindness with ethics. Near the end it says, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision. So the clarity of vision, the mindfulness, and the wisdom are connected with the pure heart. You know? So it's right there in the text, that integration. You know? So there's a beautiful way in which we practice loving-kindness that it leads towards that mindfulness and wisdom. And I love how uh, loving-kindness is connected in the Brahma-vihara, the set of four four practices, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Equanimity brings in the mindfulness and the wisdom. This is from the Tibetan uh, great practitioner and scholar and teacher Long Chenpa from about the uh, 14th century. Out of the soil of loving-kindness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Out of the soil of metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Part of that wisdom dimension developed because loving-kindness is ultimately about breaking down the barriers between oneself and other. That's really what love is, that's what kindness is. And the practice itself takes one towards, we might say, the truth of interconnection. Much as mindfulness does, I think, in its own way. And I'll, I'll just end with a few, a few further thoughts. But one of the beautiful stories about this in the classical text is a story of the monks who were living together 
who took just one collective name because they had been practicing metta a lot. <laughs> this is true. They called themselves Anuruddha, which was the name of the elder, but all of them became known as the Anuruddhas <laughs> because they had been practicing metta. And this is, uh, the Buddha once came and visited them and said, and he, he said, hello, Anuruddhas. How is it that how is it that you Anurudas are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water, blending together, regard one another with the eye of affection? The Anurudas answered. They talked about having developed uh, metta in regard to body, speech, and mind. And they said, Buddha, we have diverse bodies, but we actually have only one mind and heart. <laughs> And he said that was from the power of loving kindness. So they were, they, I think we know that. Loving kindness leads to the wisdom of interconnection. So where does that point really? And again, how do we practice it? I think we can practice this simply by that practice of having both mindfulness and metta be regular practices. They will tend to mingle, especially if we have a sitting we do half an hour, the last 10 minutes loving-kindness practice, they will tend to connect. We try to bring them both out into our daily lives, can do loving-kindness practice at meetings. I have some of my students, as I've mentioned at times, do some of them do loving-kindness when they're driving. You can do it in public places. You know, When I've done retreats here, I've done, especially done loving-kindness during meals. You can do it in all sorts of public places, it really doesn't require special conditions. It's quite interesting. Uh, so we, I think just the mingling can really, doing them both together will tend to have them become integrated. And then we can sometimes ask the question, is my mindfulness overly cold? Or and where is my heart right now? We can ask that. You know, and we can ask in the loving-kindness, is my mindfulness clear? Am I seeing clearly when I do the loving-kindness? We can ask that. So the mingling and the checking, the inviting, each of them to interpenetrate the other, like the yin-yang symbol. That's that's a way to hold it. The the long-term direction is towards what we might call the the, uh, kind of loving awareness or mindful caring and compassion, the wise heart, how do those come together? You know, we could say that we rest, we rest our awareness in the heart. This is from one of the great, uh, the sixth uh, Zen ancestor, uh, named Hui Nan, from I think, uh, you know, over I think probably twelve, thirteen hundred years ago in China. Maybe I'll end with this. Do not say that awareness is separate from kindness. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Let's just sit for a moment and we can uh, talk together. We have some time for any questions, observations, reflections. Please. It's uh, wonderful to hear that um, in the Buddhist teachings that uh, thought is believed to come before emotion because that means that if thoughts change, then emotion and the actions that arise from them can change. Yeah in domestic violence or something like that, that if thoughts can change, then 
that behavior yeah. change. Yeah. So the comment, I'll, I was asked a few weeks ago to repeat the comments or questions for the sake of the vast listening audience <laughs> on off Dharma Seed. Uh, and I think you know that the, all of the Wednesday talks are recorded and available on Dharma Seed. You can download them or listen to them streaming. Um, so the comment was about how the, the, really the relationship of thought and emotion and how um, thoughts, thoughts can sometimes, if they can, can um, influence emotions really in, in positive ways. And, and just maybe a, a further thought or two. I think, I think when we look, we have to look carefully at this. Sometimes I think that thoughts lead to emotions and sometimes emotions maybe more lead to thoughts. It probably goes in both directions that I can have, you know, look what she did. And, and then the emotion arises based on my perception maybe of something that violated a norm or something like that. That, that I have to have that thought first before the and sometimes they come simultaneously. Or I may feel, sometimes feel anger, and I actually don't know why I'm feeling anger, right? And we sometimes then figure it out. <laughs> you know, do you know that? Sometimes it's kind of, it's interesting. I think it, they go in, in quite a, quite a uh, number of directions. But um, I think what this is really pointing to is how uh, thoughts and emotions are often interfused. I think that, that's... Uh, kind of a, a related point to this connection of loving-kindness and, and mindfulness, because it's really about not having a sense that thinking and emotions are some separate, are just separate realms. Yeah. Or they get integrated, it's really, I mean, ultimately it's, it's interesting. They, they have certain, they're, they're distinct, but ultimately can be integrated, like the, what the, the limbic system in the brain is the source of a lot of the emotions. It gets integrated with the neocortex. If those are split off, we've got problems. And uh, many of us have problems. <laughs> okay, please, was there? Yeah, please. I mean, uh, let's say our names also. Uh, Susan? Yeah. Um, Donald, I attended the Being Dharma um, retreat last week and oh, yeah. heard many wonderful things, and it was a fabulous experience. But one thing relating to what you're speaking now, and I'm not sure if I misremember because there was a lot happening. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think it was perhaps Kitasara who said that the uh, heart is the original mind. Yeah. And that stayed with me, um, and I've kind of wanted to come back to it, so I'm not sure how that fits in with what you're saying. Yeah, so the, the comment was from a talk by uh, uh, Tanisara, and I, I was actually at that talk. Ah, so, because uh, I, I some, it was last Wednesday, and I sometimes stay, I usually stay all day and listen sometimes to the evening talks. So, she was saying that the, what the mind is in the heart, or I forget the language she used. And what it points to is actually something quite interesting, that in the Asian languages, there is not the same distinction between thought and emotion that we have in Western languages. And so that's why sometimes we find in the translations, they would translate it as heart-mind. And some, in some schools, in a lot of schools, when they say, where is your mind, they point to what we call the physical heart. The words themselves, the word, for example, citta, C-I-T-T-A, is often translated as mind or mental, which I think is a problematic translation, because it doesn't, there's no distinction between uh, thinking and emotion. In fact, there's no word in the Asian languages that translates emotion. It's really like a different framework. And so what we call thought and emotion come under one term, which is that of citta, C-I-T-T-A. And uh, that's quite interesting. So, so, and there, there are all sorts of problematic translations around. Every time you see the word mind or mental, which has, in a Western context, that tends to be differentiated from emotion. And so it's a bad translation <laughs> to translate citta as mind, but that's the customary translation, actually. So you can see it's very easy to get confused reading some <coughs> of these, these texts. You know. uh, but yeah, the, the sense is that of, um, of a kind of uh, um, resting in the mind-heart. Uh, 
that is uh, is possible, but it's still, I think there there's a distinction always between the ordinary mind and heart, and the awakened mind and heart, and the ordinary mind and heart, you know, or what we call mind and heart, or the ordinary thinking and emotions, isn't necessarily mature, and can operate in all in the usual confused reactive patterns. So what we're aspiring towards is this integration, is this integration, not disintegration. <laughs> what we're aiming for is disintegration. <laughs> Donald said that. <laughs> uh, but an integration between what in our culture we call heart and mind, in Asian context that, that issue wasn't there in the same way that it is for us. So I think that's, that's what people sometimes point to. Yeah. Um, please. Caroline. Yeah. Um, I have a struggle sometimes. Um, recently, an example, a direct experience in working with my daughter, yeah. who has three or four epileptic falls a day. Oh my gosh. And, um, and when you talked about the compassion for the mug that could break, the reality of my daughter's experience is that she breaks. Yeah. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, she broke her nose and her teeth. Mm. Um, again, and to be with her through that experience in a compassionate way, and to tend to her in a nursing capacity, and as a mother, someone who loves her, I notice that sometimes it's so unbearable that I have to go cold. Yeah. Mm. I have to go cold, and then I judge myself for that. Yeah. Too. So I just want to share. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Caroline. So this 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 very uh, powerful example of from your own experience of uh, a daughter who has epileptic fits, and despite what I imagine is tremendous level of caring, there are times when it feels it's too much. I have to um, almost just have a cold clinical relationship to it, or something like that. Uh, is that? I'm sorry if I, yeah. yeah. I, I, maybe I brought in the word clinical, but no, we'll no, just say. No, it's fine. Yeah. Um, what is this word? Loving what is, you see. Yeah. The, 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 I'd rather be doing other things <laughs> yeah. than be with her through them. Right. See? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, how unloving of me, I think, sometimes. Right. You see? Right. Yeah, and I think, I think that many of us probably may not have such challenging situation, but know that experience. You know, whether it's a simple example of a partner or friend or someone we care about who really wants our attention and we're just tired, right? Just very ordinary, simple examples. Or, um, you know, times come up when there are just a lot of demands and I do not always feel I, like I'm ready to respond, I can feel, I can judge myself as selfish and so forth. So, um, yeah, well thank you for letting us know about that. Uh, just a few thoughts occur. One of them is I really, con you know, continually like to bring in the theme of being clear about the degree of difficulty of a situation. And yours is, as it were, on a scale of ten, it is way beyond ten. You know if you know what I mean. It's degree of difficulty, meaning one through ten. That this is a very, very high degree of difficulty. And that, we, that it's um, just very, very hard. And that we, we, uh, we keep practicing you know, at, at lower levels. And that's where it's more accessible. And so when we get to a very high degree of difficulties, it's natural not to have uh, that capacity developed or manifest all the time. It's just uh, to be expected. Of course, you can know that intellectually, but, uh, but uh, emotionally it's still, it's still quite hard. Um, yeah, so that in, uh, maybe that's all I want to say is that that in itself, I'm sure, is a very powerful learning experience about your limits, about judgment, about knowing what's possible. But, the, but probably the, the other side of it is that when you're, you know, it sounds like a large amount of the time when you're really present, there's that interfusing of care and attention is right there. And that's maybe 
you know, despite the fact you brought up the challenges, I think that's maybe more to be um, celebrated and highlighted. That's true. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. You. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, is that Gabrielle, do you have one? Um, I, um, I was wondering whether you thought um, part of our Western culture comes ideas of thought versus emotion. Comes yeah. From Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. But since then, I mean, there have a lot, been a lot of important philosophers like Spinoza or whatever yeah. that have said, actually, no, we feel. Yeah. And therefore we are. Yeah. Also. And, but it's not been integrated into the mainstream yet. Yeah. It's actually our feelings yeah. are more dominant yeah. than we think, than our thoughts even. Yeah. Do you have a philosophy background? No, but I'm very interested. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting because um, I think, as you know, I used to teach philosophy in, in universities for like seven years. That was enough. Yeah, I think there are... Um, I would say minority voices in Western culture who have objected to the prevailing distinctions, and maybe Spinoza and others, are minority and tend to be marginalized. The prevailing models are very strong um, in making that distinction, particularly in the Anglo-American world or the, 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 the culture of Northern Europe and so forth. And so, um, you know, like I quoted uh, Pascal, who's a philosopher, said the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows not. Uh, again, tends to be a minority voice, but there are those minority voices. And actually, in, in the last 30, 40 years, in a number of different fields, uh, philosophy, psychology, cognitive science, neuroscience. that neurosciences, that prevailing model has really been challenged. And now, you know, as I mentioned, the Psychology, the prevailing psychological and scientific wisdom is more about the way that these are all integrated, you know, much, you know, in, um, in maturity, you know, and that uh, in, a, in a mature human being. Uh, so I think that the basis is there on, you know, at the cultural level for the kind of shift that we're talking about, even though uh, much of the expressions of our society and culture uh, will take a long time to catch up with that advanced understanding. You know, that uh, oftentimes our more advanced knowledge, even our science, takes a long time to reach the level of everyday culture. You know, it, you know I, I mean, I, my mind naturally goes to what's happening in Durban with climate change, same thing there. You know, they had the, I, I was listening this morning to Democracy Now! Um, and they had the uh, chair of the, uh, I think it's the international group of scientists on climate change, and he said he was somewhat shocked about how little the science was actually brought in to all the discussions of climate change. Uh, that it, that was, it was mostly about, you know, narrow political self-interest. That was what the agenda was about, that they were, they were not referring to the science in a strong <laughs> way. So anyway, that's, that's a contemporary link. Um, but, but I think that, that that's true, that, that the, uh, the knowledge, the science is there that, that can help us to really make this um, integration of the heart and the mind and the body and ethics. That's really, again, maybe I'll just end by saying the horizon of all this was, uh, again, stimulated by this discussion just nine days ago among the Teachers' Council to really ask, how does mind, what is mature mindfulness and how does it connect with these other dimensions? Ethics, wisdom, the heart. That's the, and the, my motivation is to support our having this large sense of what we're doing when we're mindful and to make the connections with these other areas. And I think I'll, I brought in another poem. I'll just end with this. This is actually, this is also my own poem, which I hope is not bad etiquette to read one's own poems I, you know, rather than, you know, Rumi or something. <laughs> okay, so this is a this is a poem. Uh, this is a poem about the interconnection of attention and love. It's called "Open Any Door," and I'll just end with this. Open any door of the heart. There are so many. Enter, with your fear and your friend, the door that opens with every glance or a quick word, or the trees in prayer.
even the shirt on your back that you don't see, the floor of old wood that you step on, doors open with them too. Then you go in, into the one world where all things have tears and kindness for you and you for them. That is the first time I've read that here, so thank you. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Sit with your intention, maybe what you've got from the morning, maybe related to our theme, but maybe there was something else that struck you that's really important that's totally unrelated, could be. So just sit with what was important for you and your intentions coming out of the morning. We end by remembering that our practice is both for ourselves and for others, and may the fruits of our practice, our mourning, our dedication, be of benefit to ourselves and be of benefit to others. Thank you, everyone, and see you next week and maybe at the ethics gathering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.